we're going to be on a difficult topic today. The lake of fire, eternal judgment, hell. And I thought, how in the world could I begin the, the, the message this morning? I typically start off in kind of a lighter, joking way, and it's a little harder to do this. I, I didn't know if maybe I could pray for hot weather and then turn off the air conditioning to kind of get us in the mood. But what I want to do is I want to start uh, show a clip from a movie called The Bridge of Terabitha. I believe that's how it's pronounced. And a family is now leaving from church, and you see the interactions of some children within the truck, and the topic of Christ and hell is, uh, is uh, exchanged. So listen to this clip as it leads us into our, our, watch this clip as it leads us into our study this morning. So that's a question, if God is a God of love, if he's made all of the beauty of creation, if he sent Jesus to die for our sins, if he loves us so much, how could he send? How could he expel people into a world of eternal separation from himself? The issue is, is that the doctrine of hell is one of the most difficult to defend in the Christian faith. It is one of the hardest to bear because as I've thought about preaching this in the, months, uh, in the months coming up to this, I've not looked forward to it at all. And it's also one of the doctrines that's the first to be abandoned when people begin to question their faith. But the fact is, is that though it's a difficult doctrine, the majority of people in America still believe it. It's something that we still think is true and that it has a ring of truth to it. But even more importantly, Jesus himself taught it. In fact, he taught more about the horrors of judgment and hell than he talked about the glories and the, the goodness of heaven. Of his 1,850 verses we have of his teachings, 13% of those relate to the topic of hell. Now remember, I used to talk to my dad when he was not a believer in Jesus Christ. And one of the things he did is he would raise questions to me about God's fairness and hell and those kinds of issues. And those were difficult issues and, and topics to, to discuss with him, especially when I was a newer believer. But my dad, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. He embraced him. And in our last conversation that I had with him a few months ago as I was over at his house, he was showing me this book he's been reading by Francis Chan called Erasing Hell. 
And my dad was compelling me to continue to preach and to teach all of the doctrines of the Bible. And because Jesus taught this, we want to teach it too. Because we at Crossroads, we believe in the authority of Scripture and all that it teaches. And when we look out in society and we see people are about to walk off of a cliff, we don't want to tell them their shoes look nice, do we? We need to warn them about what's ahead and tell them what the Bible describes. But the question we wrestle with is, is that if God is a God of love, how could He send or allow people to go to hell. Someone said, you know, I, if my kids rebel against me and if they, they don't love me or they don't like me or they don't follow what I say, I don't want to cast them away from me. So how do we understand a God of love with the doctrine of, of hell? Why is there a hell? What does it mean? What is it like? And what does it say to us as a church in regard to the mission that God has called us to live on? So Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. If you have your Bibles, if you don't, we'll be looking at the Scriptures by way of the screen. So we talk about escaping eternal regret. So now we come to Revelation where at the end of the age, all Christ has returned. He's reigned upon the earth. And now the dead are going to be finally judged. And we enter into what is called the great white throne judgment. And it says in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated upon it. Now a couple of weeks ago we talked about the judgment seat of Christ, or in the Greek it's the, the Bema seat. And that is the judgment for believers. It's where we will go before Christ and we'll face an audit for our lives. What we have done in our faithfulness and service to the Lord, we will not be judged for our sin. Thank God for that. Because Christ took our sin and we accepted his gift of forgiveness. And so we'll not be judged, we'll not be condemned for our sins, but rather we'll be evaluated for our eternal reward for the life of faithfulness and stewardship that we lived in obedience to him. But this judgment here is different. The great white throne judgment is not for followers of Jesus. It is for those who have rejected Christ. Now, Jesus is the one, I believe, who is upon this throne. He is the one who is making the judgments, as it says in Matthew 25, that he will judge all of the earth and all of the nations. Now, what is the color of this throne? It is white. As we've seen in the book of Revelation, white stands for purity, incorruptibility, and holiness. Now, in our legal system, when you go before a judge or into a court system, we have a process of appealing or contesting a ruling. Because we know that judges, we know that courts are fallible that they can be corrupted or they can make mistakes. And so there's an appeal process. But with this throne, there is complete purity, there is complete righteousness, there is complete understanding in that the judgments are made are final and they are accurate. There is no appeal process. It goes on, it says that the earth and the heavens fled from His presence. 
and there was no place for them. No place to run, no place to hide. Remember Adam and Eve, when they had sinned, what did they do? They hid from the Lord in the midst of the trees of the garden. Remember Jonah, when he had sinned and he was running from God, he he went on a ship to try to escape the presence and the calling and the, the will of God. Well, here, there's nowhere to run. There's no place to hide. There's no transportation. There's no way to flee. There's no corner to isolate yourself in. Everything is laid bare before the presence and the judgment of God on that day. Verse 12. And it says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. According to this scripture, there's different levels of judgment, of consequences in this place of the lake of fire. Verse 14 Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. The first death is the death we die physically. The second death is the death we experience spiritually in separation from God. Now, what is this about death and Hades and the sea going into the lake of fire? What you and I oftentimes don't understand, and it's very clear within Scripture, and there's no real debate about this amongst scholars and Bible teachers, is that when people who die apart from Christ today, they do not go into eternal hell or the lake of fire. They go into a place called Hades. It's similar to to the lake of fire. It's similar to what we see here in Revelation. But it's really a holding, it's really a waiting place And it's waiting yet for these people who will then face judgment. In Luke 16, and we'll talk about it a little later, the rich man, the rich man went into Hades. And so it's a temporary place of holding, waiting for this judgment. What is the sea? The sea is thrown into the lake of fire. It could be a place of holding for those who rebel against Christ during a period called the millennium or the thousand year reign of Christ and that's in the previous verses from these in Revelation 20 verse 15 it says anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire a guy by the name of Dr. Maurice Rawlings who was a surgeon in Tennessee he was not a Christian He did traumatic surgery for people who were facing traumatic injuries. And and he would see that while he was operating, they would go into these near-death experiences. He said many of the people he was operating on would have these images and these visions of, of flames and of fire and of these horrible beings. And as he saw this over and over and over, it scared him. And he realized that that to die and not know where you're going is a dangerous place to be. And this is what he said. He says, just listening to these patients has changed my life. There is a life after death. And if I don't know where I'm going, it's not safe to die. Mm. 
he came to faith in Christ for good reason. So what is this lake of fire? How do we understand it? Let me, let me tie in four images from other parts of Scripture because Revelation itself doesn't give us a lot of descriptors about this. And if you're in a note-writing mood, let me give you some blanks to fill in in your notes. Number one, it speaks of people suffering emotional anguish. It speaks of people suffering emotional anguish. Matthew 13, verses 49 through 50, by way of the screen, here's what Jesus said about it. Jesus, the loving Savior who died for all of humanity, he said, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what is this weeping and gnashing of teeth? The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says this, the reference is not to a despairing rage nor to a physical reaction, but to the remorse of those who shut out of the kingdom, even though called to it. It is the finality of a never-ending regret. Sometimes I'm cruising by the kitchen of our home, and I hear my lovely wife, Brenda, do some noise like this. Oh, oh, ever heard that noise before? The kitchen, oh, what is it? I should have taken that out of the oven 10 minutes ago. Uh, now it's burnt, okay? Now that's one way to burn calories, isn't it? It's just to leave your food too long in the oven. Oh, it's a kind of weeping. It's kind of gnashing. That's kind of what's described there. Sometimes I'm driving home on a Sunday, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I forgot the most important part of the message or the sermon. I'm, oh man, oh. And that inner guttural regret, that sense of disappointment. But the good news for us is that there's another casserole that can be made. The good news is, is that there's another message to be preached. And in the disappointments and the regrets that we feel, there's a second chance, there's another opportunity, there's another day. God's mercies are new every day it says in the book of Lamentations. But in this place of hell, it's a, reg it's a regret, it's a disappointment that's never ending and that doesn't have a second chance. Number two, it speaks of people suffering physical anguish. It speaks of people suffering physical anguish. The story of rich man and Lazarus, Jesus himself tells in Luke 16 of a man who is separated, who lived this life of pleasure and luxury, but then he did not live for God and he is separated and he's in the place of, of Hades. And it describes a level of heat and the guy with simply just a couple of drops of water on his tongue would be sweet relief. So it speaks of a physical anguish. Number three, it speaks of people suffering a relational anguish. 
a relational anguish, the images of hell, of Hades, of people being thrown, of being cast out, of being separated. I, I grew up in the 80s listening to that great, well, I don't call it great anymore, but the rock anthem of ACDC, Highway to Hell. Highway to Hell, and in that one part of the song, it says, I want to go there because all of my friends are going to be there too. Rock on, party. But is there really going to be a party there? Some people say, I'd rather go to hell because my friends are going to be there. Here's an experiment you can try. Go to your stove, turn the burners on as high as you can, and you and your friends sit on top of them. If you find that that puts you in a great party mood, then okay, maybe you're on the right road, but I don't think you'll have that experience. Hell is this place of separation. It's not a place of party and relational connection. Number four, it speaks of people suffering spiritual anguish. Spiritual anguish. Jesus, the New Testament refers to hell at 12 times it's this place called Gehenna. It's an interchangeable term for hell. Gehenna was this valley that was south of Jerusalem that was a garbage dump that was burning 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It was a smoldering garbage dump where people, it was their sanitation system, if you will. And people would take their garbage and they would throw it into Gehenna and there it would burn, there it would be taken care of. And hell is related to this image. And when you put something out on your curb or you take it to the landfill, do you want it anymore? Does it have any use to you? No, at that point it is useless. It becomes irredeemable. It no longer has a purpose. And so hell is described as this place where people have become to the place where they're no longer redeemable. So why hell? Why hell? Let me give you a couple of reasons why there is a hell. Number one, because human dignity demands it. Human dignity demands it. One day I got a call one evening from a man who was in a very desperate place, who had done some very wrong things, and he knew that the consequences for what he had done were fairly severe and he called me and he was pleading for help and he said to me he says I would commit suicide right now except I'm afraid of what would be like on the other side I don't want to end up in hell this is a guy who knew that his life has eternal value that he is redeemable and that his life is going to be judged in relation to God and he wanted to get his life right with God and the fact is is because of the doctrine and the belief of hell it has restrained so much evil and damage within our society and we as human beings know that we are judged we are accountable at an eternal level my dog, Charlie, he's a pit bull mastiff mix, pretty big guy. And you know, when he's in the backyard, he, he doesn't sit around thinking, you know, what is the meaning of life? What's, what am I to do here? I've done everything there is to do. I've chased cars. I've drank toilet water. I've eaten Anthony's shoes several times. 
but my life is empty. I don't really have anything to live for. There's this void that needs to be filled. And he doesn't do that because he's not created in the image of God. But you and I are. And we know that our lives have eternal value and eternal significance and they're eternally accountable that those who live for Jesus and those who follow Him and those who don't are accountable to the God who has created them. Number two, hell is there because love demands it. Love demands it. We don't often think of it this way, but really the doctrine of hell is evidence of the love of God. Because to truly love somebody means that you give them the freedom not to love you back. To truly love somebody means that you give them the freedom to reject you and that love is not going to be forced or coerced because if it is, it's not love at all. And hell is that place where people can ultimately choose not to love a God who loves them. Sometimes somebody will say, if God is a loving father, why would he condemn his children? I wouldn't do that to my children. And it's not an issue that God condemns his children. He gives them over to their freedom. If you have a child, as you're an earthly parent, and your child rejects you and says, I I don't want anything to do with you, your life, your way of living, who you are, and I want to go as far away from you as I can. What then do you do as a parent? You can write them letters telling them you love them, how much you care for them. You can send them money to help them get off of their feet, help them get onto their feet rather. You can go to them and plead with them and show that you care for them, but that's the limits of what you can do short of just kidnapping them, tying them up, and keeping them in your house in imprisonment. You have to let them be free. And so Peter Kreeft, the philosopher from Boston College, puts it this way. He says, those who do not wish to love God must be allowed to not love him. Those who do not want to be with God must be allowed to be separated from him. No one is in hell against their will. Some people have said hell is this place of torture. It's not because when you're tortured, you do so against your will. It's coerced. Those who go there do so because of their own free will and choice. But isn't this a pretty severe consequence the issue of hell, what, why so severe? Why the punishment? There's a youth pastor, and he had kind of a way of describing this, and he said when it comes to the topic of hell, he said that the crime becomes more severe related to the person against whom the crime is committed. And he gave this illustration. He says that suppose a middle school student punches another middle school student. Well, what happens? Well, most likely he goes into detention or some form of correction. But then suppose that during that detention he becomes angry and that middle school student then punches the teacher. Well, then he's probably going to get suspended from school or face a more severe consequence or 
punishment. And then he's ticked off and he's upset about that. And so he's going home. And then he sees this police officer and punches him in the nose. And then what happens to him? He's going to go to jail or some detention center. The punishment increases. And then suppose years later, this same boy as a young man is in a line and the President of the United States is walking past him and he lunges at him to punch him. What happens? He is shot dead by the Secret Service. All of the same actions, isn't it? But the consequences increase in severity according to the person with whom that offense is committed. And when we come to the great white throne judgment, it is the judgment that people will face before the creator and the sustainer and the ruler and the judge of the universe. So what does that mean for us? How do we put some shoe leather on this? How do we find some encouragement this morning with this doctrine of the lake of fire, a doctrine of hell? Let me give you a couple of of ways to put some shoe leather on this this morning. Number one, welcome Christ. Welcome Christ into your life. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is knocking at the door of every man and woman and children's hearts. And he says, I want to be in a relationship with you. And he makes it so easy. He says, all you need to do is believe and trust. Admit your need for Jesus. Believe in him and receive him into your life. I did that at the age of 15, hardly knowing anything about the Bible, knowing nothing about theology, but I saw that he was, felt that he was knocking on the door of my heart and in the basement of my home with hardly any religious training, any biblical. Just as a kid, Christ came into my life and he makes it easy. He makes it simple. We just have to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I want your forgiveness. I want you to come into my life. It's so amazing that I've prayed with hundreds of people, hundreds of people who have been on their deathbed experience. And so many people at the very end have found peace with God towards those very last moments of their lives. I've prayed with people who have Alzheimer's and dementia, and I've found the Holy Spirit coming into the recesses of their heart and drawing men and women to Him, even though mentally they're not there. He reaches into their hearts so that they can submit to Him and say yes. And folks, I take great comfort that God is a God of such love and passion for His people and those He has created that He is working harder and more desperately and more passionately than any of us to reach men and women, to bring them into a relationship of freedom and salvation that comes from Him. The very first person who was promised that He would be in heaven was the thief on the cross. And a man who had done, who had nothing to bear, nothing to bring into God to say, oh, this is who I am. This is what I've done great. All he had was his sin, but he gave his sin to Jesus. And Jesus said, today, you will be with me 
in paradise. That's encouraging, isn't it? And we just need to welcome him. He makes it simple for each, every man, woman, and child. Number two, for us as a church, for us as crossroads, this message compels us. It shapes our mission. And that is that we are to win people for Christ. We are to win people to Christ. Jesus, in the book of John, chapter 4, he says, open your eyes because the fields are ripe for harvest. He says, men and women out there in the world are ready to meet and experience him. And we need to open our eyes. And Jesus sends us. It was this past three weeks, as I've been on staff here for six months now, the past three weeks, the Lord has been just compelling me. He says, okay, Anthony, you've been talking about this stuff, about reaching out. You've been talking about going out in the harvest field. Now do it. The last three weeks, I've been going and I've been taking some people and we've been prayer walking in a particular area in Marine City. And Jesus said that the first place when you're reaching out in the harvest field, you need to do is pray. Pray for peace. Pray for blessing upon a community. Pray that God's presence will be felt. This past week, we were in this area in Marine City where we had our backpack outreach. And we took the funds of the VBS kids and we put these backpacks with school supplies and we gave it to people in the community. So me and a couple of people were out in this area on Wednesday and we were praying for this area, praying God's blessing, praying for vision, praying to experience the love that Jesus has for this community. And as we were about done with our walk, one of the persons I was walking with who's a newer believer saw this couple of people on their front porch and said, let's go over and talk to them. We didn't know who they were. But this person just felt compelled to do that. I said, okay, lead the way. Lead the way. And so we went and we talked to this person, just struck up a conversation. And this person began sharing about her life, began sharing about her heart, began sharing about her family. It was really cool. And we were just listening and acknowledging that. We were making this connection. Jesus says that if you find a person of peace and their peace rest upon you, you've got this connection then you continue to stay there, to hang out with that person. And so as the person shared, I felt just compelled to say, you know what, we're just out in this community and we're just praying that God's love and His blessing and His hope will just expand in this area. And she said, that's really cool. I said, also, we were here this past Saturday and we were able to give out backpacks with school supplies to the, to the kids of this area. And you know what she said? She says, really? My daughter got one of those. My daughter got, and she loved it. She thought it was so cool. And then my neighbor, his little kid, he came over. He was so excited about his backpack. You're the guys that did, what's your church? And so we were able to share where we're from, but more so share about Jesus. And then her eyes became more moist and she began to share about her spiritual story. Now I could tell she has a belief in God but she's far from God. 
And I said, you know what? Could we pray for you? Is there a way we can pray? She said, I would love that. And she began giving us some ways that she could, we could pray for her. So the four of us, we just are all in a circle there on the porch, and we prayed for her. And as we prayed for her, she says, that felt really good. And you can see the Holy Spirit drawing men and women to himself. And what we want to do in that area is that we want to establish discipleship. We want to study uh, about people, how to discover Jesus right in that area. They don't have to come to Crossroads. Crossroads can go to them because that's the heart of Jesus, isn't it? And my hope and my prayer and my vision is that throughout the Blue Water area, that we're mobilizing and training people to love, to serve and give what Jesus called prayer, care, and share. Because of this message, because of the stakes of eternity, Jesus has made the priority of our mission pretty clear, hasn't he? Can I get an amen to that?